Okay. Last year, we covered, one might say, three distinct topics, as well as having read a number of medieval texts. We raised the question, first of all, why study Jewish philosophy at all? And here we had a twofold answer. The first answer was because some members of your respective synagogues may, in fact, need to explore Jewish themes philosophically. Philosophically means, in a broad sense, in a logical, consistent sort of fashion, searching for truth. You could read many texts, especially in areas of Pashanut and things like that, where it leaves you not so satisfied, not fulfilled, it's just Devarim Be'alma. Nice perush. Guy took some drash over here, takes a little pasuk over here, takes a little Yakuchimoni um, over here, and it's a nice drash. That's called drash. It's not consistent. It's not rigorous. It's not something that leaves the person who is of this sort of mind fully satisfied. Anybody who's gone to college understands that things proceed in an orderly fashion. There's a logical consistency to it. A drash serves a different purpose. A drash is inspiring fine, but it may not necessarily solve that person's emotional, psychological, intellectual needs for a more substantive answer to a certain kind of a question. So a Baal may need that. College students definitely need that. If a college student raises a philosophical question and you answer them midrashically, you have not answered the question, leaving that young adult unfulfilled, and we're not sure where it may lead from there. Example given, which I may have told you last year, a particular person from a very religious family, Shiva Flavish graduate, went to medical school, raised questions about science and Torah. The father to one of the rabbis of the, our community, who was not sophisticated, not aware, not knowledgeable, not educated at all, period zero, and the answer to this young, budding scientist's questions were answered with, science is nonsense, what are you talking about, Torah is everything, open the Chumash, so you need to know. So I said to the father, the child had a toothache, he took him to a podiatrist. Silly. Go to the Rabbi Tendler's PhD in science. How many rabbis have PhDs that could answer that qu- those questions more substantively than simply just saying, <coughs> either denying or invalidating or madrashicizing his answer? So the end of the story is that two weeks ago, this kid intermarried. Right? Achkidekach. Father never got back on track with him. You know, it took time. And the kid says, I have nothing. It's always been amazing to me to figure out when your kid grows in a religious atmosphere, a home that's religious, kid grows with a full yeshiva education, Magen David, Flappish, whole nine yards, at the end of the day, we couldn't sell our product. We have a great product to sell. It's not being sold. And everything's going for us. doesn't make sense. How did that happen? Sometimes you can isolate the reason, or you cannot. It can be psychological, emotional reasons. But some need of that particular person has not been met. In this case, it's very clear, very simply. The child had legitimate questions. I reminded Dr. Madelon at a Sabbath about two weeks ago that he told me on corner of Avenue Jane Ocean Parkway, you know that corner? You still remember Brooklyn corner? Haven't been there in 20 years. That's my corner. He told me there that I'm religious today. I'm quoting to you. This is, goes back um, 28 years. He told me then that I'm religious today because of Rabbi Faur. What? I can say that. So because he had, as a scientist, going to medical school, he was going to medical school, and he said, uh, I had all kinds of questions. Evolution, and how do I, how do I deal with this? But Fu'ur gave him a classic answer. Torah is not meant to be a scientific textbook. 
Torah has one realm of religious thought, science another realm of thought, and for that moment, at that period of time, Dr. Madelon was happy with that way of approaching this problem. Okay, there might be more answers, better answers, more profound answers, fine, but for that moment in time, Dr. Madelon was happy with that issue. Parenthetically, just yesterday, a woman comes into my office, says, hey, I want you to read this and say, how could you believe in God when you read this? It was from USA News Report, Evolution. And there's a picture, how we developed from the tadpole. I can show it to you inside. She says, read it and let me know which, how could you believe in God after this. I said, this is, you know, I've been there before. I know this area. This is not a new hadush for me that I can, can't deal with evolution. Simple, okay, but okay, I'll read the article and we'll get back to you. And this is a 50-year-old woman. You know, why is she all of a sudden raising this question? And she's very committed. <laughs> I'll eat in her home. You know, one of the fumes I'll eat in. No problem about it. She dips her dishes. It does mikveh. The whole nine years, everything. She has a question. Maybe the subtext over here is her kids asked her the question. Maybe her husband, who's a scientist, raised the question. I don't know. Interesting question. But she comes to me with that particular question. So I'm not thrown for it. And, you know, I've done, dealt with it, fine. So on a certain level, you have to know how to answer questions that are raised Philosophical questions, defined in the broader sense, philosophically. Not with a midrash, but rather in a fashion that can satisfy the questioner to whatever level he needs. I told you when Michael Mishan asked me 20 years ago the question, can God lift a rock that he cannot, can God lift a rock, can God create a rock that he cannot lift? It's a famous theological conundrum. God's omnipotent to do anything. He can do anything, he can lift the rock. So can he create a crack that he cannot lift? Easy. It's an easy answer to, uh, question to answer philosophically. Taking a course in philosophy, Rutgers University, the teacher raises the question, comes to his rabbi, expects an answer. Told you the story of uh, Jack Maller. This is 35 years ago. I don't get it, rabbi. And he asked me not really leaving for some strange reason. Uh, what was I, in high school, first year of college, I don't know what I was at that time. And he said, Bereshit Anachimbet contradict. What are you talking about? Never. Impossible. I never read it carefully. Never read Russell Legic's article on Lonely Man of Faith. So I couldn't describe it. I said, nah, it's impossible talking about it. So I pushed it toward the Bakash. What did I, what did I tell him? I didn't know. I didn't understand the whole issue. So he took a course in Brooklyn College. They raised the issue. He raised the issue to the, one of, to the rabbi in the shul, or whoever it was in the shul, and I couldn't deal with it. Now, in every one of these cases, there's a, a, a consequence, a price to be paid, if you don't get it straight. Each one different. So there is a genuine need for a rabbi to be superiorly educated. Your ba'aleba team are educated often enough. Not all. And certainly not in the Syrian community. But there's always a handful who if you lose their support, whether it's the Elliot Brahas or the Marsh Maimans or, or the, the, the Rommels, or this, is this unusual the synagogue? 30% have gone, to, 50% have gone to college, 40% have gone to college, and the one that she mentioned have gone to graduate school and beyond. Sorry? I don't know. If you would look at, uh, you know, I don't know again, how it works. What's well, about 30%, 40% college? You think it's less than that? I know it's less than that. I'm surprised. But also keep in mind that. No, it's interesting. No, that's a good point. Good point. Uh, um, good point. I don't know. But also keep in mind. The young accused is going. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. Absolutely. And the college doesn't even do that. Anymore. The college, college experience itself is not right. probably what it was when you went to college, and that today is much more. A lot more kids are going to business school, so it's all technical. They don't. Right. They're not taught to ask questions. Or think okay. Critically. Good. So it's not. But that could change as well. No, definitely. And 
you def, either way, college, not college, you're going to get critical thinkers. No right. Even, you'll, you'll have people right. that are not college educated, but that can call a, call a bad answer when they see one. And, Good you know, point. No, exactly. High school graduates. It's they funny. Can, um, uh, they can detect that. I remember sitting in a classroom by Dweck 30 years ago. He first came in 1972. Richie, Richie um, Menahem, Shalom. Nice man, this and that. Panama, I don't know what. In the class, Roy Dweck, Roy Dweck, Roy Dweck. What about Spinoza? So Spinoza, Shahwar, Apicoros. He went crazy on him. What effect did that have on Richie Menem? Not Richie Menem was not a college educated person. I don't know what he read about Spinoza. But today's literature, New York Times, two days ago, New York Times, you have to read the article on the Science Times on creation, Big Bang. Again, I have to have dealt with that extensively. So then throw me at all. Fascinating. The New York Times, you know, that, that people read, the Elliot Dwecks of the world read that kind of an article, and they raise it to the rabbi, and they expect the rabbi to have an answer. How do we reconcile this with Bereshit? So, as we progress, I suspect, because of the internet, because of the web, you're going to have more and more issues that are going to be raised. The rabbi really has to be trained for that. I could not conceive, and maybe I'm wrong, but I could not conceive of a synagogue raise, uh, hiring a rabbi who's not college educated. A malach, a way of thinking, of awareness, educational standing. Rabbi Chaim Selevich gave a, gave a class about um, five years ago at Rutgers, about modern orthodoxy, explaining the pitfalls, the failures. And there he said, one of the failures is that a rabbi has to be seven years ahead of his kahal in learning. Right? Seven years ahead. Now, whatever that means, I'm not sure. And he said that what happened in the last 20 years is that many of the Ashkenazic modern orthodox communities, people graduated from Yeshiva University, they graduated, some simicha even. You, know, you could typically have a shul where 10 people have simicha in your shul. Astounding. Not here, but in the Ashkenazi community. In my friend Hill Davis' shul, absolutely seven, eight, six people have simicha. Again, they expect to go to a shul from the rabbi that they could not do on their own. So you have to be seven years ahead. So why you has a, had a three and a four year simicha program? So, but what about the next two or three years? The rabbi has to learn beyond somebody would get in semicha. So that's certainly true in terms of learning, but it's also true in terms of sophistication, in terms of of being able to answer these kinds of questions. So all of that is clearly, I would say, necessary for the rabbi to have some familiarity. Read five books. You read five books. You have it at least a parameter, a framework. You don't have to get a PhD to be able to answer these questions. You have to know where to look and how to address certain kinds of literature. Point number one. Point number two. Without question, that if the questions are not asked, certainly we would say that one's shi'urim, in whatever level they are, whatever they're doing, can be enriched by a certain amount of philosophy, whether it's by aluf giving a caution to Amiyah Mitzvot from Murayn Nebuchim, he's enriching his Ba'alei Batim, very, very nice, whether it's science and religion, whatever it may be, you are enriching others by virtue of what you have absorbed. As well, point number three that we mentioned is that Harambam has clearly made it a principle of his philosophy that is an obligation. It's a hova for you to study philosophy. How can you defend that statement? Simply, it's a mitzvah to love God. Well, who's God? What God? What do you mean by God? You could be a pagan without even being aware of it. How can you be a pagan? If your idea of God that I'm praying to and I'm loving is a physical image of a deity, then you, when you're image of God and your worship of God do not correspond or correspond inappropriately, then of course you could be a pagan. So one know, needs to know philosophically what God is. That God is not an Ishmael Hama physically. It's only a metaphor for what God is all about. 
So one wants to know about the existence of God, the attributes of God, divine language, all of that which Harambam, Sa'aja, Hotelavot, all present as their philosophy, pillars of their philosophy, an obligation to study philosophy. Good. Now we then next year spoke about the issue, is Torah philosophical work? The answer is, of course, it's not a philosophical work which is characterized by logic and consistency, certain approach. Torah understands that most people are not going to be impacted upon by philosophy. That you want to be aware of. Correct? This is what I'm talking about for <coughs> half a dozen people in your shul. Right? Or a dozen people in your shul. Besides those who may be enriched by it, most people are not going to take this philosophy very seriously. They're not going to be that concerned about it. That's all true. Fine. We're aware of that. Although, of course, as a rabbi in a synagogue, you always want to be concerned about everybody because even one person who is unhappy with the rabbi says, the rabbi, with that gesture, because you couldn't answer that question, either halakhically or philosophically, he tells five other people, the rabbi doesn't really have the goods. Can't really deal with the real issues. You know, whatever that question may be. I may have mentioned, may not mention you, Raymond Cohen the barber asked me 20 years ago about the Holocaust. You know, how did he... How do, you, how do you reconcile God and the Holocaust? Told him to read this book. Right? Read the book and then we'll talk about it. Of course, he didn't read the book. I sent it to him because he didn't read the book. But th- that wasn't an issue with him. The question five years later. How do you reconcile God and the Holocaust? These are not thinkers. These are not people that are really concerned about these issues. Okay, so they, you have to have a... So I point to the book, read the book. I don't read any books. So I said, look, if you don't read any... I said, if you don't read any books, then, you know, I, we can't deal with this. You know, I can't spoon feed you a very complex issue. Are you serious about it? Let's do this. You're not serious about it? then I can't deal with it. So he wasn't willing to go the nine yards, and he wasn't really... So okay, that dropped it as an issue. So it solved his problem. The fact that a rabbi... <laughs> the fact that a rabbi can deal with the issue, and want to talk about the issue, solved his problem. So every level, it's, you know, it's, whatever level the person is at, that's fine. So it solved his problem. And you don't want to leave that stone unturned of that person who either intensely needs an answer or superficially needs an answer. Because you don't want that person going ahead and trivializing who you are or your learning or your knowledge. You have to come across as knowing. Of course, in Torah areas, in halachic areas, in, in a broad range of areas, you want to try to be able to satisfy intellectual needs or whatever, and in high school as well. Rabbi Nepal gives a class in high school on Mahshava. He raised these questions. We discussed these questions. And he's been criticized because he's raising a lot of questions that these students sh- should feel they should not be hearing, or people in the community feel they should not be hearing. On the other hand, Vicky Beta goes to Penn. Vicky Beta had, calls her in the middle of the year. I can't deal with this class. What's the matter? What class are you talking about? Uh, Tigay. Tigay is a world-renowned Bible scholar. One of the top people in the world in Tanakh and Bible. He's a Shomam Mitzvot person, limitedly, conservative you would call him, at best, and he's teaching in a biblical critical fashion. It's, just, it's against 12 years of how do I deal with this? We discuss it half an hour worth. Okay, good. She, she comes up with the idea, I want to write a paper. She writes a paper for him on how to reconcile or raising the issues between high school study of Tanakh and what she's doing that first year at Penn. Right? Finished the year, very good paper. A, she got the paper, very nice. I read the paper and I said, I can't believe how unsophisticated she is, biblically. Twelve years of education, we could not, just what I told the other day, we could not give her a sophisticated appreciation of what Tanakh's all about and even how to approach these issues. We're at fault. Because what do we do in Humash and Tanakh? We read a Pasuk, we read Rashi, we read Ezra, we read Amban, and we don't give them the 
issues that are going to be raised in the college classroom. But imagine if we did it the other way and forearmed her with the knowledge that if we can't solve all the issues, or at least understand that those are certain they function on certain premises, we were on other premises. Giving her the tools to deal with these issues, what we should have done in high school. Admittedly, it's not for every kid, but it's for honors kids, it's for bright kids in the honors classes. They should have this a wherewithal of dealing sophisticatedly with Tanakh at the very minimum. At Columbia, you have a course called Lit Ham, Literature of Humanities. They do the Bible, and are the kids sophisticated, not sophisticated enough to do that? And you never know what's going to raise a doubt in a kid's mind. My Sarah tells me of four, three, four, five kids who studied a year or two at Goosh and came back and are not remembered sport at all. How does that happen? Because these kids didn't see the forest for the trees. And Goosh never thought of raising those questions. Come back to Columbia, and I don't know exactly, some of them, some, two of the people you do know, not for me to say, but it's astounding. It's really astounding how you, two years of Goosh, you come back, and one kid, one year of Goosh, you come back, no mitzvot. What went wrong in that process? Kids go to Frisch, the kids go to Flappers, kids go to all these places, and they go to this whole, whole, whole intense involvement in learning to the extent of going to the Goosh Tion for two years. Why is this, why is this uh, not a serious problem for us? It is a very serious problem. Hey, you have the best and the brightest. The Colombian, this is kids that went the whole nine yards of Goosh. Was it a philosophical question that was not answered? What about if bottom and nine, a person loses a, uh, a friend in some kind of a terrorist attack? A person loses a, a parent when he's in, in college and says, this is the problem of evil. My father was a great, great, wonderful human being and he shouldn't have passed away young. Right? That's the problem with the Odyssey. Same question. He went to his rabbi and what does the rabbi say? Now, this involves psychology as well as philosophy. What happened to Rabbi Harari in, uh, he was what, fourth grade, fifth grade? His father passed away. And, and he asked, I think it was Rabbi Shimon Kohen, his mother told me, I took him to the rabbi to tell him, you solved this problem. I can't explain to him why his father passed away when he was uh, 10 or 11 years old. It's, it's a question that every rabbi dreads. Every rabbi dreads. And yet, there is a way of approaching that. Philosophy on a simple level is still philosophy. I have books on that. You know, if, if a 10-year-old tells you, prove to me God exists. Emil Fackenheim, who's one of the great contemporary philosophers, has a book called Pathways to Jewish Belief. Very simple, made for a 10-year-old kid. It's one of the most sophisticated, able to write for a level 10th grade. You know that he knows this field well enough, and able to distill it so that that philosophical notion of proving God or explaining theodicy can in fact work for that particular child. Okay, so we do need these issues to be thought about, to be solved, <clears throat> whether it's on a, on a college level or on a high school level, or elementary school level. All that's important as well as for our own personal self-enrichment. So back to this question. Is Torah a philosophical work? The answer is no. It's not written systematically. Torah in the sense that it can impact more imaginatively. Tell a story. Do not underestimate the power of stories that contain important messages. What are the stories about? Why do you think movies are so popular? Novels are so popular. They sell millions and millions of copies. Tell the story. The way the brain is geared, <clears throat> it wants to hear a story. Speak publicly. And any time that you say, well, I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a phone, I have a phone call. Anything that's more human interest, in quotes, is going to perk their attention. Ruskin always says, you need an illustration of a story, of a midrash, whatever it may be, it's going to illustrate the point. 
It's true. I often, I do not speak or think pictorially. I don't think imaginatively. I think more conceptually. It's a flaw. And I'll go through an entire speech of, of 10, 12 minutes, and it could be good and all that. And say, I need something. I don't have it. There are those people who have those stories, those narratives, just at the fingertips. They think in a certain kind of a way. Do a great job. When you want to impact the stories, what they will always remember. If your story has a good Musad message to it, all the more so. You remember it. I remember Rabbi Sammy Kassin, must have been now nine years ago, was speaking about Lashon Hara, and he told a story. How do I know he told it? Because he told a story. It was a story. He told a story about how bad is Lashon Hara. He tells a famous story. A uh, man says Lashon Hara, goes to a rabbi, wants to atone for it. What does he do? The rabbi tells him, no problem, take a pillow full of feathers, open it up, spread it a wind. Oh, he does it all that. And the rabbi says, what is it? Did I tune? No, not yet. How do I atone for my Lashon Hara? Oh, go and pick up every single feather. Impossible. I can't do it. So to Lashon Hara. Imagine, I imagine, remember the whole entire Didasha because of the story that he told. At that point, I never heard that Didasha or whatever it is before. Okay, but nine years ago, nine years later, we think, we like, we are visual people. We are very visual people. In the article that I'm not going to ask you to read because it's 120 or 30 pages, I'm rereading it now. It's fascinating. It's brilliant. It's extraordinary. And everybody should read it privately. It's 100 It's brilliant. He describes how... Bayit Yishon and Bayit Shani different. Sorry? Ravadovich, sorry. Simon Ravadovich. Passed away very young, brilliant, brilliant mind. Wrote in Jewish philosophy. He was a Brandeis. Brilliant mind. And um, he wrote how Bayit Yishon differs from Bayit Shani. Which means, Bayit Yishon means Tanakh. Bayit means Talmud. Bayit Yishon, Tanakh, is all visual. It's Gan Eden. It's a narrative that tells a story. Bayit Shani is halacha, is conceptual. It's only one of the, it's, it's 120 pages. There's only one or two pages of what he's saying. I just started rereading, I said, this is incredible, I read it 30 years ago. And I remembered that it was brilliant. I don't know how super accurate it is in terms of every one of its points. It quotes Talmud, it quotes, it quotes, it quotes, it quotes all that stuff. Good. But it's amazing of how he's able to distinguish between these two worlds. We are taught, of course, to think it's all one stream. And if you read the article, however, you will see that clearly you can make distinctions between Bayit Yishon and Bayit Sheni in all these areas. <clears throat> so, it's, it's worth reading. You don't have to do it because it's 120, 150 pages. But it's, it's really a stimulating, original piece of work that's, I think, very, very, very sharp. Very sharp. Now, so Torah is pictorial. Gan Eden is a great narrative which teach, ver, teaches very important ideas. Very important ideas. Sin, responsibility, sin and punishment, violation of God's word, free will. Gan Eden is astounding in that if it's taught properly, it could have such an impactful message on the notion of teshuvah or lack thereof, owning up to responsibility, ayeka, how does God work? But it, it's a narrative, it's a story. Everybody knows about Gan Eden, the snake spoke. So everybody knows about it. But the more profound philosophical concepts in that narrative are ignored. It's astounding how that happened. Our teachers do not read text philosophically. I think you said to me that you read Marvin Fox's article on... Um, no, another one. That's the one. Another one he wrote on the role of philosophy in Jewish studies. Fantastic article. He says, some people get PhDs in philosophy, who get to Tanakh Lab. He says, no, philosophy is a way of thinking that every field of Jewish studies has to address. If you're in Jewish history, 
you're going to have to raise questions of consistency, logical coherence, things that philosophers think about. What am I really reading? Am I interpreting it? How am I interpreting it? Is it proper or not proper how I'm interpreting it? Same thing over here. You're reading a text called Gan Eden. Are you reading it properly? Is there a level beyond the superficial level? What ideas are emerging from it? Are they consistent? Are they logical ideas? Has into the broader framework of biblical thinking. It's a philosophical endeavor to read Tanakh. Last night in my couple's class, I'm dealing with a very um, creative, I would say, topic. This class has met for about 15 years, so you sometimes run out of creative topics. Okay, this one became very creative. I'm guaranteeing here that nobody here can guess what I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with... Oh, got it. I got it, good. I started the class last week, by, two weeks ago, by saying, what's your most favorite narrative of Tanakh? Okay, they will answer that. What is your most uh, disturbing area of Tanakh? Okay, they all answered. We discussed it. Okay, very nice discussion. I could die. It's hot. So I'm going to wear it was. I said, what are the five of the strangest narratives in Tanakh? Nobody ever raised the question. What's a strange narrative? So I admitted, of course, it could be subjective. It could vary. And no doubt, those of you who are yeshiva students will not find it strange at all. Why? Because you already read Rashi on that topic. So Rashi removed all the questions. So now I'm going to prove to you that there are five extraordinarily strange Narratives in Tanakh. Only five, right? Because I have ten weeks, so I pick two per week. What's my first? No, I wasn't even thinking that way. That's a miracle that happened on any level. That, that's the way I think. Eov, Eov. Wow, the first two chapters. I said, forget it, just the book, the first two chapters. It's the day that she says Rosh Hashanah. Okay, Malachim come along. Satan says, you see, you're a great guy. He's a great guy. Oh, yeah, because you blessed him. Get rid of all. God says, okay, no problem. Do it. Kids are, his kids are all killed. His wealth is gone. And he tears his clothes. Okay, he's fine. Worse is chapter 2. What is the next chapter? Next year? Not enough. So, no, it's worse. So, Hashem says to Satan, hey, we're going to shoot for audits. We shoot for audits. And then, and she says, he's a great guy still. He's still has to my top. Great. Sorry? No, 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 no. And what she says, you, Satan, supplying the word Satan with the Samach, Satani. You entice me or, or intrigue me to swallow him. So you fooled me, Satan. I said, wow, what kind of theology is this? Hashem saying by Satani, you made me sell nothing. Where's omnipotence? Where's omniscience? Where's everything else over here? But okay, okay, we, somehow we could deal with that. So Satan says again, yeah, that's because you didn't gabib saro. Or be or, saro. So now we're praying. What are we praying? What's the next line? What are we praying? Hashem doesn't fall into the trap again. Don't do it again, this poor guy. Yo, don't fall into the trap, Satan, Satan. Okay. Hashem says, do it. Yeah, do whatever you want him. What image of God is this portraying? Do we admit it's a very strange narrative? Hashem, God, it goes against everything that we think about God. That was the first. So we finished that. Now we're doing, we just finished last night, the Ba'alat Endor. Shaul goes to a sorceress. So I said, this is that's not so surprising. Okay, so he goes, so he fell, he's frustrated, depressed, all that stuff. No, it gets better. He, she raises the dead. She raises Shemuel. 
says what? She did it and he speaks. Just, do any of us believe here that one can raise the dead? Some people did. I said, is that really what this text is all about? Next week we have to do uh, the Radak on this. If they want to, I said, I'm happy just presenting to you this text as a very striking, strange text. If you want to try to rationalize it, which all, of course, the Geonim, Hofni Geon goes bananas on this text, as Radak does, and he quotes them both. So Ajagon says it really did happen, but the, the Rambam Radak and Hofni says it can't really happen, it's impossible, you can't accept this the way it is. So each one dealt with it differently. So again, approaching that text philosophically is what I was doing. But one need not necessarily do so. If you have, I want to present to them a strange text. Now my job is to try to analyze it philosophically. But first, you have the strange text in front of you. So, one wants to read biblical text philosophically. And then you get to what we consider to be the ikar, the essence. It's not my idea, it's the Rambam. The Rambam's whole first part of Morena Bukhim is reading biblical text philosophically. How does it make sense? How does his first chapter, Adam Yechava, creation of Adam, before Chava, how does the text present Adam? and all that, and then Adam and Chava, what did he, what did he gain when he sinned? He was created perfect. Did he have knowledge? He must have. He was created perfectly. He must have had knowledge. So he had knowledge. So what happened when he sinned? What did he gain? What did he lose? So Rambam is distinction between Emet Vasheker and Tovara. Vasheker is absolute truth. He was born knowing God's name, going knowing God's essence. Good morning. Welcome to. He is born knowing God's essence. Adam knew God's essence. Good. So what happened at, after his transgression? Tovarah he became aware of. Tovarah is not emet v'sheker. V'sheker Adam knew. Tovarah he did not know. Okay, so that distinction is important. That's the first comment of the Ramah Moneh And then onward, he speaks all about reading the Bible philosophically. Why? Because as it is, it grates on a philosopher's nerves. Because you can't tell me, Hashem, and not feel upset. Unless you're a pagan. If you're a pagan, you can deal with that. But if you're not a pagan, and we're not pagans, then how do you understand that? Yoshiva Ksidam Venisa. So the Rambam spends 71 or 72 chapters trying to analyze these terms philosophically. Good. So though Tanakh is not a philosophical work, it has to be read philosophically in order to extrapolate the Gar'in, that seed of a philosophical concept. Are there what? any works like done Allah said it? No. Philosophical well, well, the whole medieval tradition actually no, is that. Ralbag. So, right, modern day. Or, oh, modern day. Good question. Good, like, good, good. Like, let's say you just mentioned by the story of Shaul. You can do Ramban and this and that. Is there anyone who did that? No. All the, all of Tanakh? No. That's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Another 40 cool. years of life. Who's going to find and Ramban and... No, you're right. You're you right. You know what I'm saying? You're right. It's a very good... Uh, Billy said that you uh, sell books, Hebrew books, sir. I know what you're referring to. Said, all right. I don't know what book you're referring to. Uh, any books. She needs something for the. She's doing a swanning tonight. I don't sell books. <laughs> all right, that's what she said. Okay. She has to call. I call me to see what she has more specifically. I don't know what she has in mind. I don't sell books. You don't sell it. You don't have. Okay, you don't have. Nathan books. on uh, no whatever. I know. Time. I know. You, you can't get them. Okay. I'm sorry. I don't know what uh, you're referring to. Uh, okay. Um, there are uh, a wonderful book by Eliza Berkowitz, which is out of print now, <clears throat> which deals with ten biblical or eight biblical concepts philosophically. Kiddushah, Siddhikam Mushpat. Very, very wonderful book. It's a, it's a, it's a really book that he's, he's a great thinker, Eliza Berkowitz. And there are works that deal with various um, 
isolated concepts yeah. or topics. But somebody didn't do it. For, it's just too massive. It's too difficult almost. I mean, because you're rewriting Moneh Bukhim, Sa'ajah Ga'on, right. and all that. Even as a Marema Right. It's a great idea. It happens to be something that's really worth doing, knowing that tradition and, and really applying philosophical commentary of the medieval period or beyond, or beyond and beyond to, um, to modern day issues. Right? It's a, it's a good thought. Yeah. Yeah, right, of course. Oh, absolutely. Sure, absolutely. Even just sifting out what deals with it and what doesn't. Yeah, very important. It's, it's a great idea. I mean, something that you need a collaborative effort really to do that because it, it really... Midrash is a whole different study, of course, in of itself, and so is medieval Pashanut, and so is modern-day thinking on it. It's, it's a great idea. It's a lot of stuff. I mean, look, it's a great service that one would want to do for everybody. It's, it's a very good thought. And, of course, as we mentioned last... Uh, last year, the Bible is replete with philosophical concepts. Something about, let's say, divine commandments and human morality. Right? Does God ever command something that's immoral? Chas shalom, God forbid. How could God ever do that? So God is always moral. But nevertheless, of course, taf banashim of the Midianites is a little bit difficult to deal with. That certainly is a very striking issue in Matotmas, I'm sorry? And I could I talk. I could I feel less concerned about that because it didn't happen at the end, as opposed to Midianim. And I have no problem dealing with with, it, with an intense war against Midian. No problem. Maybe even you want to kill all the Nashim, Zahar Ish, fine. The tough is what bothers me, obviously enough. The little children. How do I deal with that? That's a very important question. That was hard. That's a tough one. That's very difficult. It's funny, Nat Lewin. Well, you can't. Is, is I mean, maybe the answer is. I mean, I always struggle with it also, but maybe the answer is, you can leave over if you really have to do it, right? Which certain times you have to do it, you can leave over a trace because if you leave over a trace, they will grow to become so a. Uh, the, you're going to have to deal with it again and again and again. And if there's a justified situation, maybe that's how you have to deal with it. I don't know. I mean, but. Uh, and is that moral? Very difficult question. But let's just go on beyond that because I can solve it right now. So certainly the morale, divine commandments and morality, divine providence and free will, divine omniscience and free will. If God, everybody in his life has at one point or other been challenged with that question. If God knows what's going to happen, then how do I have free will to do it? God knows what's going to tomorrow. Can I not put on to tomorrow? No, you have to put because God knows about it and I don't have free will. Of course, that's, again, classically, Rabbi Akiva, Kosafa but of course, Sa'aja deals with it, and they all deal with it in different fashions. But that's certainly a biblical question that <clears throat> could be raised. It's interesting, and I'll mention over here, that when we want to have a course in Maimonides on uh, Hashkafah, on Jewish philosophy, we went to Rabbi Salvechik, and we asked this question. I had, because I was going to teach the course. Can we teach this course? Because anything that was changed in the curriculum had to go through, his, through him. So you know, he says very funnily, and he was very cute. He says... You want to teach You teach Chumash? You teach Chumash. You teach Navi? You teach, teach Navi. You teach Gemara? There's a Jewish philosophy. And he's right. Of course he's right. The extrapolation of biblical, of, of philosophical concepts from biblical teachings is exactly what Jewish philosophy is all about. And having it consistently laid out. So of course he's right. And all these other issues, God's attributes, does it bother you about Tasev Elibo? God's depressed. So it means people always think of Haron Af, God's anger. Does God really get angry? Haron Af means flailing nostrils. 
Does, is that what really happens? We don't believe so. So it's a metaphor. People often say, okay, I could deal with anthropomorphisms. I can't deal with anthropopathisms, which is emotions attributed to God, emotions that are human. God's depressed. Hazit. Right? Hashem. I'm sorry? Well, it's not human. It's not the person that he will... Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So all these are serious issues. Theodicy. Of course, is a question that one has to raise. Creation of the universe. All these are biblical issues that <clears throat> should be treated philosophically. So clearly the Bible 100% deals with philosophical concepts that one has to think about and take seriously. Good. Now all of these are um, topics that we covered. I wanted to point out, again, if I didn't last year, Fackenheim's book deals exactly with your issue, more or less, and he has over here... First of all, it takes, this is called um, Encounters Between Judaism and Modern Philosophy, or Biblical Judaism. So we'll start over here with empiricism. The reigning school of thought determining truth in this world is called empiricism. That's what science is all about, empiricism. So he says, he, he talks about this in the context of Eliyahu Navi and empiricism. Can Judaism, can Judaism match modern philosophy's best thought? Can biblical concepts match Judaism's, match modern philosophy's best thought? Verification, falsification. This is philosophy, right? Faith in the limits of empiricism. And epilogue. The end says, yes, we can. So empiricism is not all that it's cracked up to be. Okay, good. It's a philosophical approach to the problem. Abraham and the Kantians, Akedah Yitzhak. Kant is the last great thinker about morality. Systematically, understanding, singly. So, you have this question. Now, how do we deal with Abraham Avinu, Reitzchak, and Kantian philosophy? Right? We have revealed morality. Kantian believed in revealed morality. Right? Kant's moral theology. Judaism between autonomy and heronomy. The pristine commanding presence in Judaism. Torah is a bridge between divine giver and human recipient. The parting ways between Kant and Judaism. On the Akedah, sacrifice and martyrdom. Okay. So that's that issue. Third issue. Hegel was the last great thinker who presented a philosophy of history. From the very beginning, development, and he presents a philosophy of divine revelation. From Guy, this guy Hegel. Where God's spirit is ongoingly, Geist in German, is ongoingly revealed ongoingly revealed through the natural process of the world. God's freedom is continuously opened up to the world. So he says, Judaism played a very great role in that. Great. But superseded by Christianity, which was by Catholicism, which was superseded by Protestant theology, and now we're at the millennium. We're now at the stage of opening up and it's all going to be complete. So the whole philosophy of history, a brilliant work. So Judaism has a philosophy of history as well. So now, how do we um, deal with that? Can we match up? Is our philosophy... Sorry? sorry? Did you bring a pen, a notebook? Did you... Yeah. Okay. I have a notebook. Next, <laughs> next time is the corner. So Hegel's whole view over here presents a challenge to our philosophy of history. Right? So how do we match up? Right? Good. 
And then you talk about idolatry as a minor possibility. We, of course, are concerned very much about, about Avodah Zarah. Kimra, of course, Anadim will tell you that if you deny Avodah Zarah, you came close to Akula, right? Because idolatry is the whole superstructure against which of the world that we are battling against. Hanabam is a very similar statement. You have to destroy Avodah Zarah. Completely and totally. So now, he'll talk about idolatry as a minor possibility and about Nazism, whether that, that is, in fact, um, idolatrous. And explaining, interesting over here, is one of the first works that I've seen do this, who explains why idolatry worked. They didn't really bow down to an island, you know, like Yeshayahu says, Atyiladstani. You go out into the forest, cut down a tree, gild it, shape it, cut it, face it, and all the other things like that, and you Atyiladstani. What are they, jerks? <laughs> These people were not, you know, that stupid. But he explains how the idol becomes, and he explains in the context of, of Hitler and Nazism, the idol becomes the image upon which I will project all that I really want. And then I'm able to say to that idol, what do you want of me? And it becomes a self-reflection of what I want of myself. Brilliant analysis of what idolatry is and how it could work in the modern world as well. Because most people do need idols to project their own inner needs and desires. Finally, there's existentialism, which is another modern movement. So here's a work which does, in fact, take biblical ideas and concepts and analyzes them philosophically. Good. So we had concluded our discussions last year on that note of what the Bible says philosophically. What we want to do now is introduce as almost a complement to that just for one, maybe one, one and a half sessions to round out our thinking on this issue, modern Jewish philosophy. What about modern Jewish philosophy? Now, of course, there are two ways of studying modern Jewish philosophy. Spinoza. We don't have to start with Spinoza. And we probably won't start with Spinoza because we're going to raise the question when we get to it, what is Jewish philosophy? Is Spinoza a Jewish philosopher? Correct. Because Jews started thinking differently at that point. Very interesting over here because what is Jewish philosophy? So Berkowitz deals, I hope you enjoyed the article, it's a, it's a very nice article, um, although dense at some points, but it's a very, it's a good article, what is Jewish philosophy, because it's going to teach us how to distinguish between a Spinoza who's clearly not a Jewish philosopher, and yet it's a little bit perplexing because in his logical theological treatise, he does deal with the Bible. But what's he missing to be Jewish philosopher? I don't want to get to this right now. But what's he missing to be Jewish philosopher? And is Martin Buber a Jewish philosopher? Jewish philosophy is produced by Jews or non-Jews who think Jewishly about Jewish topics or even non-Jewish topics. Science is a good example of that. We could talk about, let's say, creation. Is creation a Jewish topic? Yeah, it certainly is. Or the eternity of the world. Sorry? Exactly. So here's a topic that could be either Jewish or non-Jewish, and we could be Jewish or non-Jewish, and yet this topic, if one chooses to talk about creation, will be viewed as an issue of Jewish philosophy, but upon what sources you bring to bear on it. Right? If you bring Jewish sources, then, you, then you're dealing with this as a Jewish philosopher, as a philosopher who is using Jewish sources to solve this particular problem. So, there are two ways of studying modern Jewish philosophy. Exactly. I mean, it wasn't so much the sources that was the issue of how you relate to the three main pillars. Yeah, okay. It's part of it. It's both. Well, it's both. It's, it'll be both. And how I relate to those three pillars is how I extrapolate from 
my Torah, my this. This example, I mean, maybe it was a short article, and I didn't, you know, I mean, I did read it more carefully, but um, he, I mean, it seems to be that his whole point is that someone who's a non-Jewish philosopher, even if they may be Jewish by birth, supplants one of the three ideas with Correct. something of his own. Right. Whereas a Jewish philosopher will take, even if he incorporates anything from the outside world, when it comes to these three, he's going to make sure that they are the way that Part they are. Part of the mainstream. And, and, and yeah, I agree, agree. We agree with that. The question is, do you want to go beyond that? So when we talk about Spinoza, yeah, correct. Right. So we, we talk about Spinoza, do we want to go beyond that? Martin Buber doesn't quote in Ayn Zhao one Jewish source, period. It, he's Jewish, taught at Hebrew University, lived 85, 86 years. Must be <laughs> something there. No. But man, he lacked the amim. Was it Gemara? Was it Megillah? Was it Megillah? He lacked the amim. Tanit, some place like that. So that's an interesting question. Even to the extent where Agushim Shalom dealt all this with Kabbalah, he doesn't. He's not from. Doesn't not religious. Not from Mitzvot. He dealt as a scientist, as a scientist of of ancient Kabbalistic texts. Does that make him into, a, into a, Does that make him to a Jewish thinker? What? So these are the questions you have to deal with. So when I was there, we have to see where we want to draw the line. So I'm not comfortable drawing the line. Though he deals with Tanakh and the Rambam, Maimonides, I'm not comfortable, you know, calling him a Jewish philosopher for the reason that he mentions. And again, it's interesting because he sees himself as a Pashtun. I am telling you the Bible as it is. This is what the Bible is, and it doesn't make sense. Spinoza's angle on this. The Rambam, I hate the Rambam. Why? Because Rambam makes the Bible make sense with this whole philosophical reinterpretation. There's a book I took, I picked up in Israel. You know, I get this book in Israel. It's a really scary book. Hatanach Beli Kedusha. What is it going to tell me? It's by some Hiloni guy. I'm sure I haven't even read the book yet. So you said, I'm sure by some Hiloni guy. I don't know his name. Serious. Sorry. Yeah, baby. Green. Green. I have it inside. I, you know, I, I saw the title. I said I have to read it. <laughs> Maybe that's it. We've been moving there too, and Heschel there too. One of my biggest disappointments. No, You'll tell me. Good. Avada. Question: I'm going to read the book on on a, a pure intellectual level and see what he says. Mm-hmm. And I know what he's. I know what he's going to say. He says that if you take the Tanakh as is, you're going to be. It's going to raise a lot of serious questions. But I'm challenged by that. Let's take it as it is, without all of our reinterpretation. It's like this class I'm giving. Take these five strange biblical narratives as Eov Aleph and Bet or Endor or Endor and all that. Without your commentaries. Don't come to text with commentaries. Commentaries almost delegitimize the text. What's the right process of reading a text? First, read the text. Be struck by the text and then respond to the text. We teach kids educationally the opposite. We're afraid of the kids being struck, stricken by a text. Therefore, we say, we have a sheet to read before we read the text. Because she solves the problem before you even raise the problem. So we've, we've lost something educationally in the Tanakh as be something which is so exciting and so energizing and so challenging and stimulating, which is what we really want it to be, we lose that because of our educational system. But we gain other things with our educational system, but we certainly lose that dynamic element to it. So <clears throat> this book we'll see, but it's, it's frightening when you say, well, I'm going to, you know, you see, well, Ve'er Hashem, what image of God is presented in Tanakh? It's a very pagan image, obviously. That's what Rambam spends 70 chapters trying to undo. Exactly. It's an amazing phenomenon. What happens about the Rambam? What do you do? Well, we didn't really mean that. We have to say something or do something. And God's morality with the Midianites or the Amalekites? Again, these are serious questions. So in any case... There's a footnote. A cook in the uncensored version of Arosa Kodesh mm. says that he would 
Abel's when he's talking about the Rambam first in the monotheism, he would say that uh, he would prefer to include some of Spinoza's, in terms of the word Spinoza's ideas, um, sure. if they would be, be refined from their draft. Uh, sure. He says the word Spinoza, and he says, you know. He he, he, he said, of course. No, 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 no. He doesn't say it that way. Of course, when it gets to the sentence version, which uh, is that we bound things, uh, it says, uh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> so I once um, was doing a source book for a seminar and had a Chavrus, a guy named Heshi Pinkus, lovely, lovely guy, but from, very, very from, he was Magyar de Chavruta, very, very from, and he had done a paper on um, Eric Fromm five years earlier. This is when he was in college. So he, and if I from something on Yid uh, Hashem, something like that, so I said, can I borrow the paper? He says, okay, but be careful, because it's, it's, you know, Frank Ram. So, so he says, okay, the paper. So, wait, 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 take it, take it back. So he takes it back. And he writes, and like, Eric from the right, you had to add that. You had to add that. To, before I can, we had to add that to it. It's very funny. He became the Mashkiyot uh, Kani at, at, at Brisk in Chicago. And he tells me, and, and, and he tells me, at the end, he says, I didn't know you're getting going to Brennan's, got a PhD. No, no, no. If I knew, I wouldn't let you go. I wouldn't let you go. I said, that's why I didn't tell you. <laughs> no. he's a, but a lovely, lovely person. It was a little Ba'am Musa and Ba'am Midot. So now, there's two ways of studying modern Jewish philosophy. This will round out our discussion that we began last year. First, one can study the thinkers that produced modern Jewish philosophy. Two, you can study the issues which modern Jewish philosophers react to. Don't go back because I don't have to ask you You're going to fit into this later on. In the past, yes, very important. I planned on that, this, the dramatic you entry. Dios ex machina. So you came in at the right time. So, of course, one can study Rabbi Salvation. wife ex machina is waiting at home. Oh, what, what time do you have to? <laughs> so one can study, of course, Emil Fackenheim. Emil Fackenheim has tremendous works. He took the best of modern thought and applied Jewish thinking. Fantastic. One can study our subject, lonely man of faith, if one is studying individuals. Of course, no question. Lonely man of faith, which deals with the problem of believing in the modern world. Called to the problem of theodicy. The, the philosophical meaning of Eretz Yisrael at this point in time. What does it mean to be a Jew? Ish Goral, Ish Ya'ud. All of that from Kuldu Dofek. Ish Halakha, a philosophy of Halakha. All that would be issues as through the eyes of the thinkers. Martin Buber's Iron Vow. I mean, again, raise the question, is a Jewish work, not a Jewish work? No Jewish sources are quoted, but it seems to be a Jewish work. Franz Rosenzweig, which is a very Jewish work, The Star of Redemption. Mordechai Kaplan, struggling with how to interpret Judaism to the modern world. You know, he, was, he was originally Orthodox. Had gone, he was a rabbi at KJ before, in the 1920s. Then he went to the conservative movement, then he went to the reform movement, then he went to his own movement, Reconstructionism. Struggling, he's struggling, he was challenged. In this particular book, which we're going to come back to in a minute, the book of the by Hartman, he has a, um, it's a very good book, I like it, very, very nice book. I don't like Hartman in general, but I like this book by Hartman, where he talks about, um, it's a work of modern Jewish philosophy, conflicting visions, spiritual possibilities of modern Israel. This is where you're coming in. We're going to get this later on. He talks about this wonderful story called Israel Now. He went there, you know, and when people move to Israel, which is an incredibly difficult thing to do, yeah. amazingly difficult, as Rabbi Tal said about three years ago, four years ago, at the last Young Shaditzion, Yom Atzvah celebration, which I remember very well. It was a good story you told. Very difficult to do. I have enormous respect and even awe of these people. Right? I can't understand it. So he did it 30 years ago. So when, you, when you're living there and you say something, it had a lot of credibility to me. So he moved there 30, 35 years ago. Good. The challenge of modern traditional Judaism. Okay, good. Then he talks about Yeshaya Leibowitz. He has a major Macho Yeshaya Leibowitz. 
in his view, as a non-Jewish thinker about what Eretz Yisrael is all about, separation of church and state, etc., not important. Who's about resurgence of orthodoxy? My mind responds to the challenge of philosophy. Rabbi Salvechik responds to modernity. Rabbi religious hero. Thanks with Heschel and then Mordechai Kaplan's critique of halacha. Mordechai Kaplan halacha did not work. So Mordechai Kaplan tries to deal, struggles from guy was at one point, saying, I take Judaism very seriously. I give my life to Judaism. But how do I make it work? Says one thinker's response to this. Then an open letter to a reform rabbi and how to work with that in Israel and who was a Jew in interview. That's this, the last section is dealing with the Arabs, Palestinians. How do we deal with them? Selim Elohim. Yes, no, what do we do now with them? And strikingly, what do we do with the reform of conservative Jews? What do I do with these people? They're Jews? Yes. They're invalid Jews? Are they, are they real entities that have any kind of spiritual dignity in modern Israel? So it's a pluralism and biblical theology. Does pluralism have any role to play in biblical theology? Pluralism and revelation, etc. So, very interesting book. As themes in modern Jewish philosophy. Sunday morning, I'm giving a class on modern Jewish philosophy, something like this. And the topic they want to speak about, there's 10 people there, they want to talk about is this issue. How do you deal with Palestinians? Obviously, it's an issue of note. How do you deal with reform conservative Jews? As a Syrian rabbi, I don't deal with them at all, with either category, actually. <laughs> As a Syrian rabbi, the community does not allow me to deal with reform and conservative Jews. I was on a board, when I first came here, about you know, 10, 15 years ago, of the um, Federation, allocating money. How much money Hillel gets, how much money different organizations get. The word came out, I was with Rabbi Roth, Rabbi Bialik, myself, and 10 or 12 conservative reform Jew rabbis, male and female, husband and wife in some cases. And we raised issues. It was, it was good, important to get together and impact upon them, what we're doing, you know, what's right, and, and making them aware of what's really um, appropriate. So in, uh, the word came out, it says, you're not allowed to be part of that group. I said, why? Rabbi Dweck, oh, he was, was, was of which group? Of Federation rabbis? No, I'm sure he's not. Yes, that's true. That's true. Yeah, he is. Not him, but he is. Son is. Yeah. So no, so it's, an, so it's certainly an interesting question, but it became a big issue in the community. So I said, okay, I'll drop out. I don't mind. Sorry. No slice. No slice. From my point of view, right. That was the problem. So here you have these books. Now you have, of course, this book is... Thank you. Okay, thank you. Bye. Here you have a book, God, Man, and History, Eliza Berkowitz. It's a wonderful book on modern Jewish thinking. Reformulating the issue... Of, sorry? Sorry? Not reformulating the view that philosophy, at least that's how he said. Trying to make it work in the modern world. God, revelation, encounter, all of this, divine ethical deed. Fantastic, wonderful book to read as modern philosophy. On the other hand, a very different reformulation, Louis Jacobs, a Jewish theology. What is Jewish theology in this whole entire story? Wonderful, wonderful work to go through, again, whoever has time for this, to go through in order to formulate how to respond to modern philosophical questions philosophically. Hartman, Norman Lamb, Louis Jacobs, Berkowitz, Backenheim, all these are thinkers that have, that have articulated positions and have expressed philosophies of Judaism based on, to one degree or another, traditional Jewish sources. Bible, Talmud, Midrash, medieval Jewish philosophies, all struggling with these questions. How do we deal with these modern issues? Or, category number two, one can study issues of Jewish thought 
that were either ancient issues revisited, modern new issues that have not ever been touched upon, or one can study an ancient issue as an ancient issue. Some examples. Existence of God. You could study existence of God, which is a philosophical problem, as Harambam did, or Sa'aja did, or as Tanakh does. One can study that problem. It's an old problem. You may study that old problem with a new slant. You may want to now try again to prove God's existence, as Harambam did a thousand years ago. Old problem as an old problem. Old problem as a new modern issue. Or nature of God. Right? The Tanakh has a certain view as to the nature of Hashem. Right? That we all know. Right? That's one. The Tanakh's view of God, God feels, is emotionally connected, divine providence, a passionate, angry God. Was tremendous in number of physical attributes. Harambam, Sa'aja before him, Yadrama, not Yadrama, the, uh, um, um, Ibn Da'ud. Ibn Da'ud's work, that's the name of it. All try to, Emunarama, no, Emunarama, Emunarama. All try to sanitize the biblical view of God. Do a great job. Rabadovich has an article long in that book that I mentioned before called Sa'aj's Purification of the Idea of God. Sa'aj came first of those, all those I just mentioned. Purification of the idea of God. So we had to do that. Heschel comes along and is very angry. Why is Heschel angry? Because you remove the emotional character of God and Heschel puts it back in. So he's studying, going back to an ancient problem, namely the nature of God, and he's really only doing what the Tanakh did. So that's the way God really should be. I wrote a paper in a, in a college, or graduate, I think it was college, on Heschel's view of God. It's very different than Ron's view of God. Very, very different. And he, he explains in the, the book of the Prophets, which is a wonderful work also, how the Navi becomes so emotionally impassioned because he's now connected to the emotional passion of God. How should we view God? Are we stuck? And it was a revelation to me because... Are we stuck on the Ramanadian view of God? Because none of us feel comfortable with the biblical view of God. So, are we stuck on that? Maybe you should try to formulate a new view of God. What really is God? Just three days ago, it had the, I had the thought, <clears throat> what really is God? And you're praying three times a day, you're doing all this. You're doing it. Serious stuff. So, what's really God? Loving God, fearing God, whether He loves us, what does all this mean? The Rambam's view of God could leave you cold and, and, uh, and heartless, almost. <clears throat> made the same criticism of the, um, the purely monotheistic God that the Rambam is an elusive right. well, not transcendent that is, that is not accessible right. that's, that's where he brings in the idea of a, Spinoza, a, of Spinoza right, because, because um, Spinoza, Spinoza was what's called the God-intoxicated philosopher because what is Spinoza's view of God? God is infinite extension infinite attributes God is everything, it's pantheism or panentheism as they call it. Hashem is here. Hashem is there. Uncle Moshe was the latest in philosophers that I forgot to. Uh, He's a hidden Spinoza. Spinoza, right. All right. So, so it, there they're struggling with a very serious question. So it had the idea that could God be the form of the universe or universes, the form of the multiverse, the form, in the same way that the soul is the form of the body in, in Aristotelian terms. As somebody must have said before, it's not my Hidush, but God is, because God cannot be out there because then we're pagans. So what really is God? So one thinks about this issue. 
God is the form of the universe in some sense. There's a great article written um, about five years ago in the New York Times on a new view of the cosmos. Brilliant guy. Brilliant guy. I forget his name. I gave the article to Ovadia to read. It's interesting. And uh, he's funny. There's a book called The Elegant Universe by a guy named Green. Who happens to be at Columbia. You know, who has this new idea about the strings. Strings as uh, is what the universe is all about. A series of strings. Whatever that means. And now this other article talks about dimensions. Multiple dimensions. Multiple dimensions. And how multiple universes really exist from every black hole gives birth to a universe. Every black hole, we know what black hole is, that when, at a certain point, the black hole gives birth to another universe. So there's multiple, multiple universes out there. What is, a, is this Baral and Motabah Harivan? Is this what it's all about? We may tend to think of ourselves as the only, in the same way that, let's say, uh, thousands of people thought of this Earth as the only Earth, and there are no other planets. Now we know there are other planets. Now we know there are other galaxies. How many other galaxies? Oh, about a hundred million. hundred million galaxies. And these hundred million galaxies have a hundred billion trillion stars in them. Or stars of sun. And these have planets. There could be other forms. Don't think of God narrowly. Think of God expansively. Think that way. You say, yeah, God is much more than I thought he was. <laughs> much more. So in any case, that's a modern way of thinking about an old problem about the nature of God. What is revelation? What does revelation mean? What does Torah Meshamayim actually mean? Louis Jacobs has a very important book called 30 Principles of Judaism where he analyzes all of these concepts from a modern point of view. The 13th... It's book, by the way. Anyone is interested, it's available. Oh, it's, for, it's been out of print for a long time. How is it available? Bookfinder.com. That has it there, really? Bookfinder.com. Has any... Has, has books? Those out of print? I've worked $14. Oh my goodness. Yeah, you get for five dollars, ten dollars. They're all they they're hooked into all these types of websites. You can get anything. All you know, used books and things. You have to go to the used books section. Oh, okay. And out of the used books you can get anything Okay. Good to know. Thank you for coming. <laughs> so in that context, Jacobs will discuss thirteen principles, Mashiach. Do we believe in physical resurrection? Physical resurrection. What does Mahayamati mean? Spiritually or physically what the Ram mean when he talk, spoke about it in his Igeret. So Jacobs revisits all these, all these ideas. Give me two more minutes. One can raise the question, how does Revelation happen? Oh, shall we explain, let's say, Sa'aj's view of Revelation, which is the Nivra, God creates sound, or the Maimonidean view of Revelation, which is sort of like mental telepathy. God's mind connects with your mind. The act of intellect connects with your mind, and therefore that's how an idea, which is then trans laded through the through the magic of faculty into a political action. How does an incorporeal God communicate in a limited with a limited finite being? Is what the is all about. It's a philosophical question. So do we only want to think about this in medieval categories? Or can we think about this more expansively? Is there any Isur in doing that? We would think not. Interesting how Sa'aja and Rambam and all these other medieval works all came to the table struggling with these problems. You can raise the question, why? But it's not for this discussion right now. Prior to Sa'aja, nobody had formulated these ideas in quite such a fashion. Nobody had these issues. Tanakh certainly did not have these issues. Even Talmud did not really have these issues. They had other philosophical issues, which you want to come back to. We have to analyze what that really means. Was it really a bad call? In certain senses, bad call seems to mean Something. I mean, yeah. Okay, so we have to figure out what that really means and whether it really happened. 
if one can. So one has to think about what that really means and what what, are, what, what can we interpret, how far do we want to go. So we want to, one could, re, could analyze, for example, revelation as a monophilosophical problem and analyze it either as a medieval problem, let's say, or we can modernize it and try to think out of the box, why be stuck to the Ram's conception or Saj's conception, and think, is there any other way that we could understand the notion of revelation, of God communicating with a human being, in the same way that now the universe has expanded for us to, to extraordinary extents, Hashem is greater than he was viewed medievally from our point of view. Good. Do we understand Tanam Shemaim literally and physically? Or do we understand the Quran, interestingly enough, has a concept of a Quran Shinivra. Quran was always created in heavens prior to it giving to over to Muhammad by Jabri Ilu, and they have a physical conception of the created Quran, which was given over. Do we have the same idea Torah was created physically or as an idea? Interesting questions. So now all of these are questions, philosophical issues, that can be dealt with in a modern context, either as a medieval question, or as a philosophical question that has a modern slant to it. Jacobs, in his book, 13 Principles, gives you the modern slant to all of these 13 principles. Right? All that's there. Good. Schadva Onish. Do we believe literally in the description of Schadva Onish, let's say, um, either this worldly or next worldly. Do we believe in eternal damnation? And Ramban talks about eternal damnation. The Ramam talks about, no. There's no physical punishment after death. Rather, it's the removal or absence from God, which is what Gehinam is all about. Do we believe in an actual physical hell that you get burnt? Do we believe in Satan as a physical entity, as Christians do, as a real physical entity? Or is it a metaphor? Is it a metaphor? So these are questions about Sakhar Ba'onish that one could either study as an ancient problem or as a modern problem with modern categories. Problem of evil. Do we have any new insights into theodicy? Right. Or Salvation in Kodifik, as mentioned, talks about Siddiq Biralo. Does he provide a new modern insight to it? Or does he simply tell us what Gemaran Barachot says about it and what others say about it? No, he has new modern insight. Should we stop with Rabbi insights and or go try to go beyond that? Is there anything more to say about the problem of theodicy? Holocaust. Questions are raised over here. So all of that is part and parcel of what a Jewish thinker wants to do. Now, just again, one more minute. What one would like to come to also is modern philosophy could include not old problems as old problems, or, or, and not old problems with a new modern view of the old pro- problems, but rather with completely new problems, such as the questions that Hartman deals with in conflicting, vi- in conflicting visions, trying to analyze, sorry? Pluralism. Pluralism. Norman Lamb has a very good and important article in um, Moat Magazine about 12 years ago, 87 I think it was. Moment. Moment. In 1987, called Shivim Panim, 70 Faces, we tries to deal with two conservative rabbis, addressing conservative rabbis, saying to them, I can't validate you because you're invalid, but can I legitimize you? And he tries to make this between legitimacy and validation. 
or maybe it's vice versa. You're not legitimate, but you're valid. You're a valid, but no. He describes the Latin of each word and tries to figure out exactly what applies to them. So that's an important question. Again, as a Syrian rabbi, we're not worried about this issue. You'll never have to deal with this issue unless things change radically in the next 20 or 30 years. You have to worry about this issue. On the other hand, when Rabbi Soloveitchik sanctioned New York Board of Rabbis and, um, I'm sorry? A different kind of pluralism. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, you really do. You have three or four groupings of people that really are... Good point. ...distinct and separate and think differently and learn differently. Right. Dress differently and talk differently and observe differently. Absolutely. So have, uh, within our community. Yeah, it's it's a good point. Of, yeah, absolutely. Know, maybe not the same lines, maybe not as, you know... Not the same lines. Alright, but, uh, uh, right, but it's very... It goes over both areas. So how does one deal with that? And again, in Israel, it's a more serious problem because the issue of who's a Jew and who converted a Jew, and etc., is a very serious issue. Interesting, I don't know, the Neiman Commission tried to solve the problem. On one hand, it's laughed at by many because it's, uh, who are you kidding? On the other hand, it's the only way to solve this problem. And you're dealing with 1.8 million conservative Jews, 1.2 million reformed Jews, controlled by a couple hundred thousand Orthodox Jews. If we continue to go that route, we may lose all of Judaism. Because these people may defect and say, we don't care about Israel any longer. And you're the minority. We don't need you. We don't care about you. When are they going to be willing to, when are they going to make that break? Tendler has an article in, um, I think it's also a moment. He calls them a deviant sect of Judaism, like Christianity. Reform and conservative Jews. Very strong statement. You're no different. Now, he may be true, may be correct. He may be right about that. It's a very, very difficult issue. Agreed. So, right. So, how do we synergize? The RCA has positions on this. But Soloveitchik allowed one to engage in conversations with conservative reformed Jews without discussing theology or religion. Which is kind of funny. You deal with it on... <laughs> you deal with them on a social level. You deal with them on a human need level. On political level. All that, yes. But theology, we have nothing to talk to them about. So it allowed rabbis to be part of the Single Council of America, New York Board of Rabbis, and all that. The right-wing world destroyed that position, devastated that position. When we met with the uh, Shiva, that was a major issue they raised. We met, uh, 25 YU rabbis met 1988, 1989, based with Rabbi Billet and Rabbi Buchwald, with the Novelinsky Rabbi, Rav Svei, and um, Rav Palm, Rav Shalom, right? And their attempt was to bridge the gap between the right-wing, Aguda, and the YU world. So they, everybody raised questions. Why did you leave this? I said, Rabbi Sergeant left us. He left us. His position on Zionism, religious Zionism, his position on local rights, he left us. He's not part of our world. So we cannot accommodate his world. So there were two meetings, each of two and a half, three hours each, and there was an attempt, but it failed at the end. You know, it didn't happen. Nothing happened as well. But these are serious questions. The Palestinian question, the conservative reform serious question. Obviously, medieval Jewish thinkers confronted neither of these two questions. How do we view the other from an orthodox point of view? Do they have spiritual dignity or not? It's an interesting question. Do we say that, they, that Hashem, how does Hashem view them? A good, solid, conservative Jew, a good, solid, reformed Jew. Or his Ma'asehah Mitzvah has a certain validity to it. Difficult questions. And to close, certainly the question that one has to raise is how to evaluate Medina Israel as a spiritual 
entity. Is this Shihadiyyu or not? Is this to be viewed as messianic or the beginning or not? Hartman is dealing with this modern Jewish philosophical question. And how do you determine this? On the other hand, you have what Satma says about it. Ma'afseh Satan. No better. What does one do? And again, that question is raised in shuls by Ba'alei Batim. It's raised in schools by high school students. They're challenged by this question. Interesting is that there's a very serious problem now on the college campus where the Arab students are much more organized and have the better answers than our Jewish students. Because nobody's dealing with these issues about the Palestinians at all in a college context, other than saying, you know, they, they stink, you know, they're, they're horrible, you know, not human beings. And the kids are going to college, and there's all kinds of demonstrations this, this way, and we are horribly ignorant on a high school level of teaching our kids how to deal with this problem, both practically and theoretically. What are we looking for? If you condemn and damn all, let's say, Palestinians, then that's going to put this kid in a, you know, in a certain framework when he gets to college. On the other hand, if they have legitimacy, do you want to have legitimacy? Is there hope for legitimacy? Should, what should be the positions that we take vis-à-vis Palestinians that obviously are not terrorists and obviously not murderers? We're not talking about those. But are, and are there others that can do that? How are we going to ultimately solve this problem? You have uh, one, how many, about one and a half million Palestinians. Oh, that's counting Israeli Arabs. I think that was one and a half million. Maybe counting Gaza. Oh, lives there, so. Gaza. 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 Okay, so there's a lot. What do you do with them? It's a problem, right? And getting worse, Diana. It's getting worse. So we have to deal with that. That's a, a question that begins from the formulation, from the philosophical relations as to what are these people all about? Philosophically, politically, sedimentally, is there any measure of respect that one wants to accord them because they are human beings created sedimentally? Is Israel the fulfillment of God's plan? For Israel, all these are questions that modern Jewish philosophers, such as Hartman, struggle with, try to deal with. And they come to it from a certain vantage point. So these are some of the issues that a modern Jewish philosopher will deal with. So now we're going to continue first by talking a little bit back to last year's topic, Talmudic concepts of philosophy, which means, again, how the Talmud deals with philosophy. That's one. I'll give you one or two articles to read about that when I get it together. And then go into a deeper analysis of, let's say, one medieval text, either Sa'adja or Harambam, and just to see how he deals with certain issues. Okay? Sorry to keep you. So, wait. So, what we're going to do is start with how the Gemara. Yeah. As we do the Bible, right. A particular problem or 